Hey, what's up? I'm so thrown off now. Listen, that's because I'm a changed man. I hold in my hand my Enneagram results. And holy crap, I know so much more about myself in the past week than I've known the last 32 years. I don't know what that word is. Like I know what it means. Oh, okay. Uh, Cool. I feel like I'll say it wrong. It's like a personality test, but it's not really Uh, personality. It's what motivates you. And there's nine different types. And it just helps you identify what type you are, what number you are, and then talks about what your motivations are and some strengths you have and some possible weaknesses. And holy crap, like I went over this with a work coach and I printed out all 40 pages to take to my therapist and be like, I have our like manual for the next year. Congrats, I guess. You will not recognize me soon. Oh, okay. Andrew. I'm an INCP. Don't come at me. I don't know what that means. I know what it's from, but. Yeah, I'm the I, worst at this. I'm bad yeah. at everything I do. What's up? I got big news coming soon, but not yet. So I'm excited to say that. And I don't know. Life's pretty good. Feels great. No snow. Nice and 70. I was getting those snow flurry notifications on my phone. So we got some here coming, I guess. I got an extra room for you. We were in St. Louis for Christmas wedding last weekend, and it was stupid how cold it was. Really? I was like, oh, I'm going to wear this comfortable windbreaker. And like walking to the arch, I think I got frostbite. We did have to amputate all your toes in the meantime. But. So that's why you're going to look different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. Enough about everything unimportant. Let's talk about Ben Orenstein. Our friend from the early days of Remote Ruby joined us February 2019. Chris did the maths. And so, yeah, he is back with us today. Want to talk tuple, things pairing and... Ben, if you don't mind, maybe just giving yourself a brief introduction. Sure. Yeah. So my career started off as a programmer. So I wrote Ruby for maybe a decade or so. Got really into it, really enjoyed it. I went to work for ThoughtBot. I was there for about seven years. That's where I got kind of my exposure to the, the world. Learned a lot about programming, did a lot of conference speaking, eventually started teaching Ruby concepts through a product called Upcase that I helped start at ThoughtBot. And... Did some work on a couple of SaaS apps that ThoughtBot had made as kind of like hack projects and realized that like I loved working on businesses. Like the intersection of code and business was just super fun. And I was like, I want to do this like for real. And so eventually I quit that job and started a company called Tuple with two co-founders. And we make a remote pair programming app that runs on Mac OS right now, soon to be on Linux as well. And it's been going really well. So we are going to be nine people in just like any day now, which is nuts. Got tens of thousands of paying customers at this point. Turned into a, a real legit business. This thing that we started and it's, it started in a bedroom with two friends of mine, just coding right next to each other. And now I'm on calls with people and talking to recruiters and cold DMing people to try to get them to come work for us. That's amazing. I feel like last time you're here, I think it might have just been you and your two co-founders. Very likely. Oh, yeah. Nine is big. That is, those are yeah. big gains. Before we dig into some tuple stuff, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but the upcase stuff was so critical in my career because when I was a beginner, it felt like there was a lack between like beginner and advanced content. And like upcase was like that middle road. 
I was really craving it. And so I hear your voice like talking to you and I still see you sitting there explaining concepts in those videos. So it's cool. I'm glad you. I'm so glad it was helpful because it was a lot of work. I can imagine. I made one course and I'm not sure I'll ever do it again. So yeah, the, uh, the, w- one of the worst things I ever, well, no, I mean, best and worst things we ever did was decide to like commit to a production schedule where we put out a video each week. I think it helped the company, like the, you know, revenue wise helped to grow, but always having to feed the beast is pretty brutal as I, I know Chris is aware. <laughs> yeah. All too aware. I remember one time I saw Brian Bates had said something about taking 40 hours to make one video and I was always like that's ridiculous but it is exactly that it is a huge pain the never-ending content hamster wheel and Ryan Bates made his you know last rails cast June 16th 2013 and has not I think he didn't touch a computer for like six years oh man and and now he's back he's back though yeah I saw him on active on Twitter yeah like daily it's surreal it feels like it's 2014 again (laughs) yeah it's pretty crazy so you went from being the Vim guy and making these hmm. Ruby tutorials and stuff. Now you are CEO of a company with almost nine people now. How has that transition been? Because I feel like last we talked, you were doing that work and getting used to that, but still kind of very heavy in product and development on stuff. But I'm going to guess that it's much more about people and running a company now instead of writing code or managing projects like that. So I'd love to hear how things have changed. Yeah. The analogy I use is that it has been like moving from a first person shooter to a real time strategy. So I do less and less stuff myself and more marshalling forces and sending them around and making decisions at a higher level. And there's this constant tug of, so we have a problem. Do I jump in and solve the problem? Or do I try to solve this class of problem forever by hiring someone to take care of these problems? And it's interesting. I like it. It's completely unlike programming, but it's still a good time. Yeah, that is a really awesome way to look at it because, yeah, you can have one-off things that come up that you can just like, ah, we'll fix that or whatever. But then design or something like that is a recurring problem that you're like, let's just hire a designer for that. Have you had struggles? Now you've got to interview people. Now you got to manage people delegating. That's a lot of, I feel like probably quite a bit different of a day-to-day than you were used to. Like, have you had to unlearn stuff in order to make it through that? I don't know about unlearn so much, but definitely learn. I am screwing stuff up pretty regularly. Or like, you know, coming into a new skill, you just don't know how to do it well. So it's like, how do you interview someone really well? Well, you kind of have to do a lot of them to get good at it, like everything else. And so my life is actually kind of constantly, like my work life, moving between things that I'm not very good at. Where it's like, okay, we need to hire a marketing person. How the heck do you do that exactly? How do you hire for roles that you've never done yourself? How do you solve large coordination problems at companies? How do you decide between competing priorities? There are all these complicated skills that need lots of reps. And typically, when I get the hang of something, it's usually time to go move on to another thing. Like we, we're getting all these inbound sales leads from these big companies. So like we have a self-service sign up. We're like, please just enter a credit card. No, we need to do the big company stuff. We need you to fill out the security audit. We need you to fax us a copy of your certificate of insurance. We need all these things. And I was like, well, there's kind of too much money here to ignore this. And so I basically was like, let me learn how to do enterprise sales. 
And so I spent six months just being like, okay, I'm the salesperson and just figuring out these things and doing a lot of Googling and reaching out to people that kind of know what they're doing and asking them questions. And then eventually hiring someone for that role once I sort of had the gist of it and then stepped away from that. And now I don't think about sales almost at all because someone else is managing that and swiftly moved over to a brand new thing. All right. How about marketing? All right. Well, I don't know. Let's start learning this from scratch as well or from scratch-ish. Is that kind of a common thing for you where you're... It's an area you don't know about, but before hiring, you like want to get the hang of it first so you know how to hire? Or have there been areas where you're like, uh, I'm not going to touch that. Let me just hire someone. I guess it's been both. Like It's naive to think that you are going to come in and with a few months of experience, really get the hang of a complicated job and then like enough to really make savvy calls on people, I think. I think it helps to have the lay of the land a bit. I think you interview a bit better. But I also am not fooling myself into thinking like, oh, I'm an expert. Like I can interview someone like I would a developer position or something like that. So it's still tricky. Yeah, that makes sense. So last time I was listening to Art of Product, y'all were talking a lot about you hiring on these new people and then you trying to figure out ways to document all the things that you've been doing, right? That these people now need to be privy to. How has that kind of evolved or changed or how did that play out? Ongoing. It's, I think it's like a, a sort of an eternal struggle, actually, is like communication at quote unquote scale, I guess. We're not really, we're not huge, but still we are distributed. And so when you're not all in the same bedroom anymore, information does not just automatically flow. And so there needs to be deliberate communication. And so we're figuring out what our processes are there. We do send out like a weekly email now that like bounces between departments. So sales will be like, here's an update on the last month of sales. And then it goes over to engineering and it's like, here's an update on the last month of engineering, that sort of thing. But that's our current thing. And I think that will continue. That will evolve forever, basically. Every time you add a few more people, it's like all the old stuff doesn't work anymore. Or like we discover a better way or find some deficiencies. I think you could have me on here in another two years. and I'll say, oh yeah, I'm still spending a lot of time thinking about how do we communicate well and make sure everyone's on the same page. As a technical CEO, do you find yourself seeing these processes like, oh, well, we need to send out these emails and all this and wanting to kind of reach for code when maybe code isn't the right solution? I think actually I have a healthy suspicion about code. So I would say I'm probably more likely to suggest that we don't write a thing and use some off-the-shelf service or some old-fashioned manual process as opposed to to writing more code. That is quite the senior answer right there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think I've done it long enough that I I know the long-term maintenance costs of something that feels like a small, easy one-off. So Tuple is a Mac app, but y'all actually have a Rails app somewhere in there. So I'm kind of curious as to what that thing is doing, because I've used Tuple since the beginning. I don't have a current subscription, but will soon, hopefully. But I love it. I've used it at several prior companies. So I'm super interested in what that Rails app is doing, given like how much of it's probably Swift or C sharp. So Tuple is a desktop app. So there's no browser-based version of Tuple that had the performance that we wanted. We sort of tried. You just can't do what we want to do because we knew that it was important to have super high quality, really low latency, low CPU use, that kind of thing. And there's only limited APIs from the browser. So we're like, okay, we have to write a desktop app. So Tuple is mostly a lot of C++. There's like a cross-platform C++ engine that handles all of the real-time stuff and like all the screen sharing and the webcams and the audio and things like that, connection negotiation. And then there is a fairly thin Swift layer on top of that, which is all the Mac-specific stuff for doing windowing and some UI stuff. And that's what's being worked on right now on the Linux side is that we're building the equivalent of that over on Linux in GTK. 
So the Rails app is actually the back end of the service. So it's where you go to create an account, it's where you go to manage billing and invoicing and things like that, see the team. And the Rails app is sort of often a place the client will ask questions like, who's on my team? Things like that. Does it interface with the Mac desktop client at all? Yes, it does. Yeah. So like if you want to generate an invite for something, for example, like, oh, I want to add a new, another person to the team, enter your email here, that triggers an API call to the like, post to the Rails backend that then generates the email invite, for example. Nice. Going back to the Swift part, recently macOS Monterey came out. Did y'all have any hard times upgrading or how did that kind of play out given that you have this kind of C++ layer? I think it wasn't too bad. So <laughs> it's funny. I didn't have to do any of that. Right. So as far as I know, it's no, no big deal. But here you're seeing like the disconnect between me and actual day-to-day coding where it's like, unless it was really painful, I probably wouldn't have heard about it. It's just like, we have a CTO in an engineering department and like stuff is happening over there. And the minute details often don't even make it to my, to my radar. Nice. I guess that's good then. It's something. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. I think it's mostly good. Yeah. It's, it's good to have really competent people handling those things. And like, I don't need to know about what happened with Monterey because it's not a part of my chunk of the company. We have people for that. And my co-founder CTO is, is on that. And if we don't need to talk about it, then hey, that's great. You mentioned earlier that when you were at ThoughtBot, you realized you like the intersection of code and running a business. Now that you found yourself, it sounds like just on the side of running a business, do you miss coding? Do you have any side projects you do to stay coding? I'm not currently doing any coding side projects. I don't exactly miss it. I miss a little bit of the flow of it. It's nice to spend a day in flow or like long chunks of the day in flow. And I think coding produces that state for me better than almost anything. Writing is probably the next best thing, but I enjoyed coding. And so I miss that flow. I miss the enjoyment. I miss the fun brain stimulation of it. But I like getting better at things. And I especially like getting better at things when I'm not good at them yet. And so I've been writing code for a long, long time. And so improvement on the coding access was coming slower and slower. It took more and more work to get noticeably better at programming. But improvement on the how do you be a CEO of a software company, tons of opportunities there. And like the improvements come easier and there's bigger gains to be had. So yeah, miss a little bit. But overall, because what I like is learning, not too much. You said as CEO, you still do a lot of writing. Do you do your writing in Vim? You're still known as a Vim god uh, to like even newcomers in the, the communities. That's funny. It's, that's kind of a testament to creating lasting educational materials. I guess, like creating videos, creating courses, giving talks, because I have not taught anyone anything about Vim probably for like, I don't know, seven years, eight years, something like that. And it's funny that I'm still the Vim guy, like that reputation remains, I guess, because like there's still videos being watched on YouTube of like my Vim talk at this, this conference or something. But yes, I actually still do use Vim. That's where all, most of my writing happens. I've been looking around for like a note taking app that I like. And some of them are pretty good. But like at the end of the day, it's just like everything that is not Vim for editing. I kind of hate it. I have a gift for you. It's called Obsidian and it has Vim mode. Nice. I love Obsidian. Okay, cool. I should check that out. I played with that a little bit. I didn't realize it had Vim mode. I've been learning Vim and I've been getting better at it by using it in Obsidian. Nice. That's cool. Yeah, that, that model with the backlinking and whatnot is I think pretty good. So that's that might work for me. Do you ever get triggered by Vim mode that doesn't fully replicate Vim where you're like visual mode is just slightly off or something and you're like, oh, it drives me crazy. VS code or something. I've kind of (laughs) hidden from, or like I I haven't used Vim mode in anything because I just use Vim. But that's my worry is that I have 15 years of muscle memory built up about how Vim handles everything. 
whatever the, like the sixty percent of Vim that's a Vim mode implemented. It, if it's not exactly right, I don't know. It might be a little could be a little annoying. One of the weirdest things for me is that I like have this memory. You were going to launch like a really interactive. It's like a Vim cohort almost, and you emailed people and are like, "Hey." give me your credit card. And it's one of the few times I'm like, yes, here you go. Here's my credit card. And I got an email and you're like, Hey, we're not going to do it. And it was like the first time I've ever been upset that I wasn't going to spend that much money. And ever since I just, I keep trying them and I get a weekend and then I'm like, Oh, I really know these like sublime key cuts that I've used for 10 years. So my failure. Negative self-talk is not going to help you learn Vim, but that yes. Also. Uh, yeah. So there's a period of time where I was, casting around for the next business idea. So I didn't actually go right from ThoughtBot to Tuple exactly. And so I was like thinking about like, okay, I knew I wanted to work for myself. I knew I want to make a thing. And that was one of the ideas that was kind of testing that ended up getting scrapped. It was a good idea, but I could completely understand if it's like, oh, there's only five people interested. That's not worth it. It's a big undertaking. That's also what led you though to the refactoring Rails course. Is that the same period? Yes, exactly. Yeah. That was the first one I did decide to commit to creating, which was like I, I was leaving ThoughtBot. I had all this built up Rails knowledge for how to maintain a more mature Rails app and thought it would be worth distilling down into a course, which incidentally, Chris is now uh, familiar, pretty familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I have people go through that all the time and leave comments and they're like, this is just really nice to have the... What was really great about their course is very concise. And so it was great to be able to use as a reference for like different strategies on refactoring. I still go through it once a year just to refresh really? or something on cool. on little things that I'm like, you know what? I remember Ben had some strategy for it. And yeah, good stuff. What got me thinking about talking about that era, what led you into Tuple? I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but that is a like the interactive Vim course, something that's like going to be quite a lot of work. And you know that building a, a screen sharing tool is going to be a lot of work, especially going from web development to desktop app development, which is a complete different thing and challenge. So I was kind of curious, what was the thought process going through that and deciding, yeah, let's do this. That is a hard challenge. So it was on my list of business ideas for a while. and one of my co-founders and I would hang out and I would go through the list and kind of pitch him on the ideas. And we shot them down one by one, except for that one. And that was like, there might be something here. And like the backstory was there was this thing called Screen Hero that was really good that I guess old timers at this point would remember. There was a much beloved remote pairing tool that got bought by Slack and more or less shut down and kind of, kind of killed. And nothing had seemed to step into its place. And I kept asking friends, like, what are you using now that that's gone? And no one had a good answer. And it felt like there was this hole in the market. And there was a thing in it. Had, Screen Hero had been successful. And now it was gone. And no one is doing this. And so it felt like, okay, there's a window open right now where it seems like we could run into this space and there's not even really much competition here. It scared us a bit to have the change of paradigm for sure. Like None of us had any desktop experience. None of us had written C++. None of us knew anything about real-time communications at all. And so it really was from nothing. We were all web developers for sure. But like, I got this really key piece of encouragement, which is I reached out to one of the Screen Hero co-founders, Franz Khan, and I DM'd him. And he was like, yeah, I'm happy to talk to you. And we jumped on a call. And I was like, I'm thinking about doing a thing that would kind of be like a spiritual successor to Screen Hero. 
do you think this is a good idea? And he was like, absolutely, you should do it. And he basically just convinced us that like, yeah, it's hard. You're going to have to learn C++. That's going to be really annoying, but you can figure it out. The latency is really important. So make sure you focus on that. Don't screw that up. But he said, yeah, there's a gap in the market. Your read of the situation is correct. Believe in yourself. Go get it. And that nudge at just the right time was just like, okay, this is happening. Right after that call, like a day later, it was like, we met up in a coffee shop and it was like, we're all going to quit our jobs, aren't we? And it was like, yeah, we are. <laughs> we're doing this. That's cool. Did you have reservations that they had went and built that? And then, I mean, they got acquired by Slack, so they had some success, but it wasn't enough success, I guess, for them to continue working on their own as screen hero of the business. So was that anything that crossed your mind? Maybe now's a better time or... Uh, no, it was more that it, it wasn't clearly the right choice to sell. They were profitable enough. They were on path to be doing pretty well. But from having talked to a few people who were in that world at Screen Hero at the time, the perception was sort of like Slack is coming. It's this huge behemoth. They're building Slack calls. Oh my God, they're probably going to kill us. And they're going to compete with us. And it's going to be, we won't be able to build as fast as they are. They have all this funding. And so when Slack was like, hey, we want to buy you, they're like, oh, yes, thank, thank goodness. This is the safe move. And it turned out, I think the pitch was, we'll integrate Screen Hero into Slack calls to make Slack calls better. In practice, that didn't really work. Way too hard. Separate code bases. One of them is an Electron app. One is a C++ app. No bueno. So it just didn't happen. So it felt kind of like the takeaway was not exactly a botched acquisition. And like I think the Screen Hero folks went on and did really good work on Slack calls later. But I think basically the, the, the end result was like they pretty much had to scrap a product that was much loved and was doing well. And it turns out that Slack actually is not really a competitor to a thing like Screen Hero because we are constantly picking off their users and turning them into Tuple customers. I'd say some of our happier users are people coming from Slack and Zoom and Meet and things like that. That makes a lot of sense. It's sort of the, the typical, oh no, Google is going to compete with us and crush us kind of moment or whatever. Do you still consider Tuple as a primarily marketing towards developers and peer programming? I know you described it like that, but there is obviously tons of people who want to screen share in general and don't have to be developers. So I was just kind of curious, have your thoughts evolved on that? Because I know originally that was core market, but as you grow, is that going to expand? Probably not. I am extremely happy with our niche. It lets us make a tool that is really well-loved by our niche. We don't have to go wide at all. We don't have to compromise on what we care about. It can be nerdy. We have some like nerdier features coming this year, I suspect, that will be like appreciated by developers, but would make no sense for people outside that market. And that is great, actually. Like, I think there's just so much power in being tightly focused. And I would be shocked if we had 2% of Mac developers using Tuple at this point. I have no idea what the actual number is, but it's, it's like every day there's more programmers. Every day there's more remote programmers. I have no worry about this market being big enough for us to have amazing lives running a, a company that is you know, doing quite well. So I think that's one of the last levers I would pull is to like expand the focus. Even though you're right, if you make an amazing screen sharing tool that developers love, you could sell it to designers and they will love it too. And other people that care about performance and latency and things like that. But... That focus is, I think, super valuable and I would be loath to give it up. Yeah, I really like that answer because you can go far and above service the developers that 
do want those weird features. And Zoom will never go that far. No other tool will go that deep into those unique things that developers will benefit from for screen sharing. And that is a great strategy when you're building a business and you want to differentiate. Just go super deep on some market and no one else is going to bother with the, you know, if you have that many Mac developers, then yes, maybe eventually they consider some of those problems, but they're going to want to just go serve whatever generic Windows users and yeah, you know, the generic big company approach. Do you integrate your apps with third parties like Stripe, GitHub, Slack, or Trello? If you want quality webhooks like Stripes, for example, that's more than just sending a JSON payload to your customer's URL and calling it a day, right? That's where Hook Relay comes in. Hook Relay is a service that makes sending and receiving webhooks reliable, secure, and transparent automatically. Some may even say magically. Users are amazed at the visibility they've gained into their webhooks. Without Hook Relay, you have no idea how many requests you're processing. With Hook Relay, you can watch your traffic, inspect each request, and much more. It's like x-ray vision. If your app or your integration partners are being flaky, you'll love the peace of mind that comes with knowing that no matter what happens, Hook Relay will make sure that your webhooks are delivered. Skip days of grunt work rolling your own webhook system and get reliable webhooks for your app in minutes, not days. Go to hookrelay.dev to get started and check webhooks off your to-do list. That's hookrelay.dev, all one word. So like we're a small team, so having a niche is vitally important for that as well. But another benefit is because we are a specialized version of a tool that people already use, people have a good answer for like when they go to try Tuple and they like it and they go to their boss, hey, we want to buy a Tuple subscription. And they go, don't we already have like Zoom? And they go, no, no, no. This is for pair programming. It's tailored for pairing. And they go, okay. And then they buy a Tuple subscription. Whereas if we were like, yeah, we're a remote video conferencing tool that has screen sharing or something. like It's like Google Meet's free. Why are we doing this? Absolutely not. Oh, that's super good. Yeah, because you're not comparable then. We literally can't use the other tool. We have to use Tuple for this. And that's very good. Very good answer for those situations. Yeah. So you said you're working on a a Linux version. That will be pretty awesome because I know there are a lot of Linux developers there. What is the trouble for building a Linux version? Because the whole sort of GUI for Linux is totally different from Mac and Windows. Like how much effort is that to go build? You know, you have a core C++ library, but all of the actual screen stuff is totally different. Is that a lot of work? It is a lot of work. Yeah. When we wrote the Mac app, we very intentionally said, let's not even think about a time where we're multi-platform. And maybe we didn't even know for sure that we would switch. We would go beyond Mac. But we thought... And like, honestly, we've built a pretty solid business on just Mac. There's a lot of Mac developers, developers that use Macs. So we didn't build the first version to be multi-platform at all. And so everything was pretty much bound together as you would kind of expect. There was no consideration for different worlds. So a big chunk of the work in going to Linux was maybe eight months of pulling stuff apart. Once we decided, yeah, we, we do actually really want to go do this. It was like, okay, step one, disentangle, decomplex these things. We need a cross-platform C++ layer, like engine that handles all of the core heavy lifting. So that was a huge amount of work to get to the place where like, we, we had that. And that's actually still, still going. It's not even done. And that was because we had decided... Another thing we decided early on is we're going to make native apps. We tried Electron and we didn't feel like we got the performance we wanted. We were fighting. We didn't like the memory use and things like that and how much hacking and recompiling we'd have to do to get it to do what we wanted. So we said, all right, let's make a real native app. And so 
we were committed to doing a native app on Mac OS. And then when we go to Linux, like we want to do the same thing. We're not going to use an Electron app for Linux or something. So that's kind of the hard way of doing both those things. And so it takes longer than it might otherwise. But we believe pretty strongly that that's the thing that developers will care about. Like when it's not Electron, that wins points. When it loads quickly and uses native windows and native dialogues and things like that. Yes, this feels like a real first-class quality product on this operating system. Yeah, and you can absolutely feel that. Plus, Electron doesn't even make... It makes sense in the case of like Slack. You need that to run in a browser on the web and for the desktop too. But like screen sharing, you have all this rendering stuff and browser features that you're just not going to ever use. And it makes a lot of sense to, to build something native. Is it something that there's a lot of different desktop rendering options and things in Linux? Is that problematic to make something compatible with a lot of things? Or are you just targeting... KDE or GNOME or some, yeah, some we'll, of the most popular ones? Or We'll see how that goes. <laughs> in theory, there are like abstractions that we will get away with that will help make this easier. In practice, we'll see how that turns out. Like right now, we're targeting X11, but then everyone's like, hey, can you do Wayland 2? And we're like, yeah, probably eventually. And like <laughs> even just determining how do you distribute an app on Linux, like which of the options, all of which are kind of bad, do we choose? Which set of trade-offs are we willing to accept? So it's big, it's hard. We'll see how bad it is. We're in alpha now. We actually have an app. People are using it. It works. We're steadily marching it towards parity with a Mac app. We'll see as we go to like wide release and have hundreds, thousands of users, how that goes. Yeah, I think that sounds quite the challenge. Back in college, we, well, in, in kind of high school and stuff, I reverse engineered the apt get stuff and built that in Python. And that alone was kind of ridiculous. And just like the differences between your Debian packages and Fedora and whatever, like there's just an an enormous amount of things. Speaking of all that, if this kind of challenge interests you, I am trying to hire a Linux app developer here. So nice. We have once again sort of dove in without knowledge and just like learning as we go. And like my CTO Spencer is like amazing at just like biting off an enormous new field and and figuring it out. But we would love to add someone to the team to be like the lead for the Linux client. So if someone is listening that has strong C++ chops, understands GTK, maybe wants a little bit of real-time exposure, like that would be, we would love to talk to you. We're, We're trying real hard to find somebody. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful challenge for somebody because... I got frustrated a while back because Let's Encrypt used to have like a Debian package and stuff. And then they stopped. I don't think they had anybody that was very familiar with it. So they like just stopped releasing the package and it was out of date and it wouldn't renew Let's Encrypt certificates properly because it never saved things to the config file that were like needed. And Mm -hmm. there's a long conversation in GitHub issues about that. It's like, are you ever going to like publish a new version of this package and whatnot? And I think you'll probably see a lot of places are just like, we'll just toss it on GitHub releases as a compiled, you know, executable. And then you just download it, a new copy mm. instead of trying to manage the Debian repository and making a new version of that for every release of Debian or Ubuntu or whatever. And it'll be interesting challenges for somebody who wants to really get deep into Linux and all the million different ways of dealing with things there. Yeah. If that's exciting to anybody, we are looking and we're trying real hard. So please email me. Just jobs at tuple.app is your best bet there. It's also posted on our like website, of course. We'll put a link in the show notes as well. What led to doing Linux before doing Windows, for example? 
So we started on Mac. And when people would ask us for alternate operating systems, we would ask them which ones they wanted. And Linux beat Windows 2 to 1. Wow. It's not a fair fight in a way. So Windows, I believe, is about 50% of the dev ecosystem. And then Linux and Mac split like 25, 25, roughly, very roughly. So you would think, yeah, obviously Windows is next. But Mac people are more adjacent to Linux people than Windows people. So it's more likely that if you have a mixed environment at your company, it's probably Mac and Linux more than Mac and Windows. So we were all Mac users. That's what we liked the most. So we were clearly going to start on Mac. That felt the best to us. Given that we like put the first stick in the ground there, Linux was just like, it just won the popularity contest for our world. That makes a lot of sense. That is your market and the people you have easiest access to and asking them, it does make sense that Linux would be the first answer over Windows there. Is that yeah. something that you're going to push more into once, I assume a lot of the sort of designing for Linux has also got Windows in mind as you go That's here. Right. Is, is right. that going to be one of those big pushes soon? Yes, I think it will be. It's on the plan as of now. We, we intend to do that. So we'll see how horrible or like how wonderful Linux goes and how we feel and how much energy we have and how the recruiting for people to run those projects goes. Um, so things can always change. But as of today, yeah, it feels like not being on all three platforms feels kind of foolish for a collaboration app. It's a little bit like we're leaving just too, a little bit too much on the table. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it is one of those things too that it's a huge challenge. So like you can't just immediately jump in and start doing all of them at once. Yeah. And then you have these like parallel apps evolving in parallel. We want to add a new feature. Well, how does it work over here? Oh, we don't have access to that API over here. So how are we going to build this thing? And so... I'm already a little bit nervous about what life looks like with two apps. So currently, I don't know if my heart can handle three right now, but we will see if I gain the, the courage as time goes on and we say, all right, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Yeah, because there is some of that magic that you can display the webcam on my screen, but it doesn't go across this, the stream. Right. And you're like, you know, if I was naively building screen sharing, it would assume it's just whatever I see here is being sent over. And Obviously, there's some operating level integration to be able to like, we're just going to make this window invisible across the yes. stream. And that's super cool, but also probably something very specific to the Mac or Linux or Windows. Yeah, TBD. I'm not even sure if they do will let us like exclude Windows from like display capturing. Is the API there? The answer could be yes, could be no. Yeah, there's sort of a, as a, a product gets bigger, feature development sources slow down. And do you think it's that kind of stuff that will affect speed of shipping new features and things like that? If you're worried about, well, we can get it working on Mac, but now it's like twice as much work, if not more, to make it also work on Linux and then Windows. Is that something that like you're worried about? Yeah, very much so. I think that's a big threat to our ability to keep shipping stuff that our customers want at a pace that they're happy with, for sure. So that to me is like the big thing to keep our eye on. And why I want to spend some time having two clients and seeing like what kind of team do we need in order to maintain good pace and what kind of processes do we have to have in order to keep doing that. Because the essential function at Tuple is figure out what we should build next, mostly through customer input, make good decisions about how to build that, ship it, get it out the door, make people happy, and just like keep running that loop again and again as fast as we can. That's like the core competency that we have to be able to do. And so anything that breaks that is company destroying eventually. Like that's how you get caught or that's how you get you know crushed by a competitor or people dissatisfied and like your churn goes up crazy or something. So 
to avoid that fate is our, pretty much our number one priority. And so it is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night a little bit. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I feel like you've done a really good job on all of this by making it just the Mac app for as long as you can. And that keeps the iteration fast. And you even did pricing wasn't public for the longest time so that you could test all of that. And having public pricing slows you down from testing pricing. So I think I've seen a lot of little things like that that you've done that gave me good ideas or strategies on, yeah, you know what? We should just figure this out and keep it small intentionally so we can see exactly what we want to commit to for the long term instead Mm -hmm. of do everything public. And then guess what? Then you're kind of on the hook for all of that. And it allows you to iterate faster. You have any like tips on that to share? How do you think about when is it ready to commit to being like something public that you're going to like, this is how it's going to be. These are the features Mm. we're going to have. And you're testing between going from your testing phase and realizing, yes, we're going to do this. And that's going to be like permanent. I'm going to answer a slightly different question that I have an answer to. Yeah. More readily, which is, but it's closely related. A thing that has served us really well is shipping less than you think you need to. Intentionally ignoring missing things or complexity that you know is there that you're not handling well. When we didn't have public pricing, that was nice because I could test lots of prices. But I also would like manually charge people's cards when they finally did agree to a price. Like I would cut them an invoice in Stripe and email it over to them and then they would fill it out. And then when then I saw it was paid, I would like just get an email and then I would go and load up the Rails console in production and be like, team dot create bang name and like literally add a database record and then get an invite token and write an email. Here you go. Here's your invite token. Like I was the the human fulfillment service. And you would think you can't have a product that people can use without self-serve fully automated signup. I was like, no, you can actually. You can make thousands and thousands of dollars doing it yourself. And if the thing that you're trying to figure out is not, can I build a self-serve checkout, which I knew I could, but is this product anything? Can we make something people actually want? What do people value? What are they willing to pay for it? What gets the deal done? You can cut so much of that stuff to focus on what really matters. Like we didn't have password resets. And that was just like, yeah, any idiot knows you need a password reset, obviously. Like, of course you have to have password resets on day one. No, you don't. Like you totally you don't. And we just took that even further. Where it's like, you don't need a pricing page, actually. Turns out you can have a SaaS product with no pricing page, no sign-up page. Your CEO could just do it via email and it's fine. And we did that pretty aggressively. And it let us get to testing the questions that were much more scary because there was so much engineering risk on this project where it was like I had been basically pre-selling Tuple ahead of time constantly. And it was like, that was working really well. Like I was charging people's credit cards for vaporware based on a description. And so it was like, okay, when I describe the dream, people pay for it. But can we build the thing that I'm talking about? Was totally unknown. And like, Definitely not any, a layup given our backgrounds and how hard the problem space was. So I was trying to make sure we put all our effort into pushing that forward and trying to ignore as much of the other stuff as possible. Yeah, that's a good answer. That is the like philosophy behind the stuff that you've just continued to do after that. You get the product done, then you're like, can we do enterprise sales? Are people willing sure. like to buy it in bulk? And Yeah, I, I think it was about a year before 
canceling your Tuple subscription actually locked you out of the product. Yeah. Like you would go cancel, it. we'd stop billing you, and that was it. And like, yeah, we, we needed to make some webhooks happen and updates and things, and we just hadn't gotten around to it because we were doing other things that were more important. And so I think there's a lot of things that anyone would assume like you have to, like, to be a legit product. I think we are proof that no. For anything you're about to ship, just be like, do we really have to do this? Do we have to do this right now? Is this the most important thing to do right now? Or can we get away with it if we add a little manual elbow grease or just ignore the fact that, oh yeah, some people might cancel and then keep using it and we technically are missing out on money, whatever. Worth asking. Yeah. That's such an interesting thing because programmers, you have the tendency to be like, if they ask me to build the billing feature, then it needs to be complete and we need to have the cancellation and that needs to revoke access to the product and blah, blah, blah. But you're really breaking that down and saying, no. For the business, what do we actually need? And it doesn't need to be a complete feature. That might be something a little off-putting maybe to some developers or like just feels very unintuitive, but it's really coming from a business-first emphasis, not software. You're not building complete software. You're building a business. And that's the more important thing. There's no such thing as complete billing, right? Like billing is infinitely deep effectively. So you're already drawing the line somewhere. Are you handling every currency known to man? And no, you're not. So like, fine. You've already made a decision of what's in scope and what's out of scope. And I would just encourage people on average, I would imagine, particularly if you're a developer trying to do a software product for the first time, cut way more than you think you, like when your natural inclination is. I like it. Jason, that that gives you free reign to submit like half PRs at work now, I think. Listen, I'm over here like taking notes because like I'm trying to like build something on the side for myself right now. And I'm like looking at my list like, oh, I could cut that. I could cut that. Oh, like, I don't know. That's really good advice. So thanks for sharing that. You wrote a kind of guide about why pairing is so important. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit because I have gotten a lot of my ideas of pairing from you, from listening to your podcast. And I like them a lot. When I interview at new companies, I'm like, hey, what's the pairing culture? Because I found out that is very important to me after hearing y'all talk about it. I'm like, oh, that is very important to me. Pairing is one of the best ways I can accomplish my work. So Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to know if your ideas have changed on it at all or if you're still the same way. I'm pretty gung-ho about it for a few reasons. I think I've gotten actually more pro-pairing over time and not just because it helps my business, but based on personal experience, which is particularly now, as folks are working remotely, distributed, that sort of thing, Pairing is less lonely than working by yourself. I pair, quote unquote, with people on my team on various things that are not code. We really need to write this email. We got to write a doc about this thing. I need to edit this thing. And we will pair on them together because it keeps me more productive because I actually stay on task. And it is just, it is literally just more fun. It is less isolating. It's less sad. Someone else's energy is there to kind of buoy me. And so I feel like, if anything, pairing is more useful today than it was when we started. Like we started pre COVID. So I'm on the pairing train for show. I want to interject there that honestly, when the pandemic started, I attribute much of like my staying in rhythm to pair programming because we were pairing six or seven hours a day. And we had literally just adopted that at Podia. My coworker, Basil and I, we were on call like eight to five o'clock in the afternoon. And it just like, I wasn't seeing anyone else, but it was like, he was right there with me all day. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that. It's hard to stay focused by yourself. Takes a lot of willpower, I find. But if someone else is on the call with me, especially if you're sharing your screen with them, you can't just flip over to email, pull up a Twitter or whatever. It's just this person could see what I'm doing. I got to keep doing it. 
there are times that I forget that I'm sharing and I'll do that. I was in a call with my CTO one time and opened up my like old tax documents from my previous employer. And he's like, do you realize you're sharing right now? And I was like, whoops. Wow. I've also gotten really good at just keeping do not disturb on 24 seven. That was a little too full detail we added early on is just turning on do not disturb for you as soon as screen sharing starts. It's, don't want that. Cool. Other than the Linux stuff, is there anything really cool coming down the pipe for Tuple that anyone thinking about adopting Tuple should know about? Yeah, I'd say one of the bigger things we get asked about a lot is supporting more than three people on a call, which is something that we intend to do this year. So expanding it away from pairing and up to mobbing, basically. We've had people say like, there are four people on my team. And like when we go from three to four, we have to switch to Google Meet. Please save me from Google Meet. Please support this. So we don't want to force people back to other solutions. So that is coming. And then a lot of quality of life stuff. I would say the last couple of years have been kind of about like build a core experience that is good, stabilize the code base, dig out of the, we didn't know what we were doing early days, need to refactor all the C++, pull it out into an engine, that sort of thing. And there are a lot of little things like, oh, we have some ideas for like, how do we make this thing that took two clicks take one? Better Slack commands, URLs to access sessions, things like that. So for a productivity tool like ours, I think it's really important to like constantly be like shaving down that friction because otherwise it's, it's just not as good an experience. So lots of little stuff coming too. Cool. I got one more plug. Plug it. Now that you're, I'm a CEO, all I talk about is hiring because this is the lever. Hiring is so hard. It's, it's like really a kind of a brutal thing. It also is just when you add a good person to a small team, it's unbelievable. So I have to stay on this, on this, <laughs> this particular horse. So anyway, so talked about the Linux developer. Would love to hire someone like that. Also, I'm looking for a, a developer evangelist. So someone who shaved kind of like Chris, honestly. Basically, <laughs> if you are someone that's already making things that developers think are interesting, like videos, articles, TikToks, live streams, novels, anything. I want to talk to you because I think the way to market Tuple is to make great things that developers think are cool. And I would like to find someone who's already making great things that developers think are cool and throw a small Tuple sponsorship on there and have you work for us and just do that on our behalf. It doesn't have to be like, and so now you pair a program on Tuple all day long. Or like, you're always like talking about how pairing is the best thing ever. Just literally like, you make good stuff. It gets on Hacker News. It gets retweeted. You have a YouTube following, whatever. I want to talk to you if that's you. Send me links of your stuff. Prove that you've already attracted this audience through good content. And I would love to speak with you. Sounds very interesting. So Twitter is the way you want them to contact? Twitter's fine. R0 is okay. You can just DM me if you want. R0 is okay on there. Or jobs at tuple.app is also fine. I will see it there. That goes to me as well as other people. So I will, I'll definitely see your message. Tuple.app slash jobs. Thanks for chatting with us. It's uh, cool to hear all the progress in Tuple land. And Thank you. It's just, it's just yeah. good to catch up. I think there's a lot of people rooting for you in Tuple. And so thanks for Thank you. letting us... I feel the same way. I feel like we got a lot of really positive support. Like Our customers are so nice to us. We got posted on the Hacker News the other day and I was like, oh God, here we go. And the comments were so kind. And I was like, oh wow, that's amazing. I feel like we have like really great, friendly, warm customers. And so I, I feel that. Sorry, I just have to call this out. I think this is really cool. It says, your job here, pitch us a role that we should totally already be looking for. I think that's super cool. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, have, I'm open to the idea that like I don't know who I should hire. And if you write me an incredible email about why I should hire you and what the benefits to Supla are going to be, I just might hire you. That's 100% possible. I don't think I know exactly what the team needs to look like. So, Has anyone ever done that before? People have done it. I have not hired someone exactly off that post or off, the, off that particular thing, but I, I have tweeted random things. Like, I'm thinking maybe I should hire 
a chief of staff because it seemed like maybe it would work this way. Someone reached out, wrote me a phenomenal email. We interviewed, we started, he hires. I have a chief of staff now. He's great. So it works. I love that openness of like, I don't know what the company should be like. And you're just open about it. And that attracts such good people sometimes because they're yeah. like, they're like, yeah, you know what? I spotted something that we can really help with. And totally. Like, I would love to discover a blind spot and have someone just sell me. You're, you're being dumb. Look at this. Like you should do this. I'm like, oh my, yeah, you're right. I would, I would love that experience. So please hit me that's, up. That's so refreshing from the typical CEO of like, I know everything and blah, blah, blah. It's just kind of a ego thing a lot of times. And it's the opposite. And I think that goes a long ways and, and says a lot of why like everyone's so supportive of Tuple because you are doing the exact same back to the community. Just here to help you make your life easier and we're open to anything we can do to help you. And I think that just says a lot of good things about you and, and the team and everything. So thanks for being back on. I hope that we get to hang out again in person sometime at MicroConf or something. So I'll be there this year. I'm hoping to. Well, cool. we'll see. I think uh, COVID's Hopefully ramping back down a bit this year, but we'll see. I'm going. I'm just, I'll be there. So, but yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great to talk to you guys. It's nice to be reminded of where we were a couple of years ago and like where things have come. It was kind of nice to have that mirror held up and it's nice talking to all of you. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do it again in a couple of years and just every, we'll just check in on you every couple of years and see how. Send me an invite for 2025. I'll accept it. Cool. All right. Well, anything else before we head out? That is all from Memphis. It's all from St. Louis. It's all from Phoenix. Oh my God! Is this a new? Is this a new way? No, 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 no. I liked it. I liked it. No, I think it's kind of badass. Should have rolled with it. Wow.